So when we're looking to the future, as we're doing in our current study, we're sometimes looking at the immediate future, long term, in somewhere in between. Uh, it, we don't really go too far uh, in time before we start thinking about what's going to happen to each of us. And, and sometimes the future seems lovely. It's wonderful, and you almost can't wait for it. But other times it seems depressing and something that you would rather avoid. Sometimes the future is scary. And, uh, I, I mean, all of us have experienced those times where either there's been great changes in our lives uh, or we're anticipating a change and we're, we fear it greatly. Uh, that's when, as believers, we put our trust in the Lord and we know by His promise and, and instead of living in our emotions, we live in his promise, which doesn't mean we're void of emotion, by the way. It means that we have different emotions, emotions that are responding to the promises of our Lord. God, in, in his word, is always very consistent with all his saints, Old Testament, New, and all of us, that we should all smile at the future. It's true of all. I mean, there's some there's some wonderful stories in the Gospels where the disciples are freaking out over things, and he says to, and that's it's almost in every case the Lord calls them little children. As I heard someone say recently, we're all little children living in adult suits. God wants us to look to the future with joy and confidence, and He also wants us to sit lightly in this world. You know what I mean by that? I'm not anchored to it. I'm tethered in a way, but sit lightly in this world. And he gives us just enough information to know the future is going to be wonderful. God gives us just enough information to know that it's going to be beyond what we could even think or imagine. And he also tells us that, look, if you die before I come, don't think you're going to be missing out on anything. Because, in fact, I'm going to raise you first before I raise or transform those who are living when I return. But still, there's some things we can't know. And these things may make us a little anxious. There's no reason to be. No reason at all. Today we're going to see that the rapture is a biblical fact. And I mean that in terms of where the word comes from. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it's a, it's a fact. What is also a fact is that it's imminent. What's also a fact is that we're going to meet the Lord in the air. What's also a fact is that it's going to happen in a moment. And what's also a fact is our bodies are going to be changed. What we have to decipher is timing. The timing of the rapture or the gathering up if you will. You could call it the harpazo, if you like. That's really the Greek word. <laughs> When's the harpazo coming? That's when you can ask people. They'll be like, excuse me. But the timing of the rapture is not explicitly written out for us. But what we do is we take this scripture, that scripture, and the other scripture, and about a half a dozen more, and we come to conclusions. And one of the con conclusions, we can say with certainty, no, but with almost certainty is that it's going to come before the great tribulation. 
But still, there are questions. And there are sound, wonderful teachers who disagree with that conclusion. They're wonderful teachers. Believe me, I'm so glad that I've read their stuff. I still don't agree with them. But that's okay. You know, I'm glad that I have because if I met a post-trib, look, a pre-trib rapturist and a post-trib rapturist should be able to congregate in the same church and get along wonderfully. You just differ on interpretation. But unfortunately, and Satan has done a wonderful job at this, he's gotten us at each other's throats for secondary things. What is secondary is timing. What is primary is that he's coming back, that he loves you, and that he's coming for you. And as the scripture says, to receive you to himself. And that's one of the scriptures we'll look at today. Uh, so at first we're going to start, we have a, not many scriptures to go to today, but we're going to go to Acts chapter 1. We'll get there pretty quick. Let's pray. In Acts chapter 1, we'll see the Lord tell us that it's not for you to know the timing of things. And uh, let's pray that God opens up our hearts to the truth or usual, that we're humble and ready to learn, and that uh, nothing's on our heart that would distract us from really concentrating on what God has for us. And uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for, just thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us a completed text that has so much in it that we would spend lifetimes and still be learning. And I think for eternity we'll still be learning just from the text. But I know that there's more that you'll reveal. But until that time, you've given us enough. You've given us actually more than enough. And we ask, Father, that with what we do have, that we would understand that each of us would come to a realization of what your revelation means and not be distracted by um, paradoxical issues or not be distracted or conflicted in ourselves by the things that we can't know, but to be truly joyous over the things that we can know that you make real through your Spirit who is within us. And so we ask for that reality and understanding here today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So the biblical data, as I said, points to an imminent rapture. The biblical data points to... Now, imminent is for certain. That is undeniable. I mean, when Scripture just says, this is going to happen any moment, there, you know, that's as deep... You can't say, hey, pastor, can we go deeper than that? Uh, no. <laughs> fact is a fact. If it's imminent, it's imminent. And it is. What it points to, and we'll see, and we'll have great fun with this, because what we're going to have to do here is first do the rapture and then the tribulation, because in Second Thessalonians 2, Paul is going to use... Uh, probably the most significant event in the tribulation to bring the Thessalonians to peace regarding the fact that they haven't missed anything. And so, and the tribulation is, is a great study for us in, for many reasons. Um, and it has great application, even though we're not going to live through it. 
the application to us now is, is extremely impactful. So the, the biblical data, what I mean by that is, you know, the scriptures point to pre-tribulational rapture, which happens in a moment. Uh, that's the imminent. Uh, no, the, the moment is for sure. Paul just says it. It's going to happen in a moment, twinkling of an eye. We'll see what that means. Actually, it doesn't necessarily mean blinking, uh, which I, I find that comforting because I thought to myself, well, you know, I could blink very slowly or I could blink very rapidly. Actually, a little Maggie sometimes looks at me and, and challenges me to a blinking contest, and then she blinks her eyes real quick. And I'm like, I'm like Maggie, it's supposed to be a staring contest, I think, that you're, that you're after here. But whatever, she's almost six. Uh, our bodies are going to be transformed completely. That's a fact. We're going to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds of the air. That's a fact. But here's where there's a difference. For the post-trib folks, and coming up soon we'll spend an entire class on this, the post-trib ones. I, I've learned a ton from learning from them, even though I disagree with it. Um, post-trib is the raptures, that the church is going to go through the tribulation, and that when the, when the second coming comes, when, when Jesus is on his way from heaven to earth, he raptures us. We meet the Lord in the air, and then we don't really go to heaven with him. We come back to earth. Right? So now all of us who have been brought up as pre-trib people, we shake our heads and we go, come on, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And look, if you just, without bias, look at the biblical data, it has some merits to it, but it also violates other passages. And, you know, it's not as crazy as you might think, but I still don't think it's the real one. Uh, and we'll see that. So, for instance, this is a quote from Dwight Pentecost and Things to Come. This, uh, some years back, the textbook in every premillennial college seminary, I mean, this is the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for years, and he says this in uh, Things to Come, page 193. A number of arguments may be presented in support of the pre-tribulational rapture position. While not all of them are of equal weight, the cumulative evidence is strong. Now, what does that tell you? It's evidence, right? It's, and, and the whole purpose of this book, Things to Come, is eschatology. It's, the whole thing is written, and I love it. It's wonderful. He's done an amazing work. That guy was still working at DT, Dallas Theological Seminary when he was in his 90s. This guy knew his prophecy. Him, Walrude, all of those guys, and Schaefer, they were the, the ones who started it all over there. And uh, anyway, what, what does it tell us? It tells us that the Bible doesn't explicitly teach a pre-tribulational rapture, uh, pre rapture. I said trapture. <laughs> That's a trap, that doctrinal trap. Anyway, the Bible does not state the pre-tribulational rapture position explicitly or directly. I mean, it would be so easy to do so. God would just say, look, Jesus is coming back. He's going to get the church, and he's going to take them to heaven. And then some years later, after the tribulation, he's going to return with his church to the earth, and then uh, he's going to institute his kingdom. 
I mean, I know enough Greek after two years to write that out in Greek. I probably have to look up some vocab, but I could do it. No, it wouldn't be hard to communicate. And that's my point. And, and if for some of us that makes us nervous, too bad. I'm not here to, I'm, nobody should present something that the Bible doesn't say for certain as for certain. Because then you're taking God's chair. You know, if he doesn't make it certain, it's not certain. And that's okay. I trust him. <laughs> I think you do. So, like, and you know, I could just say, hey, look, here's the pre-trib position. It's a fact. Let's move on. I'm not going to do that because, because God doesn't do that. And that's why I won't. For some reason, I know it would hinder our learning. And it would hinder our spiritual lives. To venture, you know, as Schaefer does say in the opening of his systematic theology, eight volumes, by the way, the things this thing. But in his introduction, he says, look, there are some things in this text that we're not going to understand. And the uh, image he uses, he says, when standing at the threshold of time and eternity, you have to admit there are going to be some things that you just don't understand. Finite mind on the threshold of infinity. And on, the, on that threshold is an infinite mind. And there's just some things I'm not going to understand. And, and I liken this to the Old Testament prophets. They, under, they prophesied, you know, the second coming of Christ, the tribulation, the kingdom of God. More of it is written in the Old Testament than in the New. And even in the book of Revelation, more of it is written in the Old Testament. So there were things that they understood. But when Christ came, people didn't understand him. Even his disciples didn't understand him. Not until after he was resurrected. And after he was resurrected, he took them to the Old Testament scriptures in Luke 24. And he said, look, this is what has to happen to the Messiah. And he went through Moses and he went through the prophets and he went through the Psalms. And he said, look, this is what happened. And then they were all like, well, why didn't we see that before? Yeah, exactly right. Who aren't ready. And, you know, for a lot of things, I don't think we're ready. So when things happen, there's going to be some things that we're going to truly be, and when I say happen, I mean rapture. Even for those of us who died before it, there's going to be some things that we're going to be like, I saw that coming. And you're going to marvel at it. But there are going to be some things you're going to say, I didn't see that coming. And whatever those things are, hallelujah, thank God for them. Can you imagine being at this amazing event and being like, oh, yeah, I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. I knew that. Almost like you're bored. I mean, come on now. There's got to be something here that is beyond our imagination. And that should be fine with us. All right, so positions on the rapture. I, I was going to make a joke on this and what position you should be when the rapture comes. My raptard friends used to always go like this. That's Ellen. She used to say rapture, rapture practice, and she'd put her hands up in the air. Yeah, <laughs> got to go up like Superman, I guess. It doesn't, I guess it doesn't matter. But I must state again, and this 
no one of any merit denies, even the post-tribulational people, that the Lord's coming is imminent. They don't deny it because they can't. <laughs> they can't. They explain it in a different way. And I'll share with you some of the explanations. I think they're helpful. I think, I think it's helpful to look at the other side and then say, all right, from my own learning of the Bible, can I see if that's right or wrong? Rather than, you know, I, I, had my, I grew up Catholic, as you know, and when I first became a believer, I'd bring the Bible to my family and say, let's open it up. What was their response? No, don't even open it. <laughs> don't open it. It was like this, this holy thing that, that they were unable to look at. We shouldn't be, you know, with any, I mean, not with sin. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that, don't look at it. But what I'm talking about is trained theologians who love the Lord, who are Christians, who are saints, who believe something different. There's nothing, it's actually quite helpful to look at their stuff. And then from your own, and it'll help you in your own biblical understanding. All right. He's coming back at any time. Uh, so the rapture itself is not in question. The timing of it is. All right, so the rapture itself is not in question. 1 Thessalonians 4:16, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. Um, as we'll do, these are the three we'll see today. Uh, John 14, uh, 1 through 3. Uh, they all state it pretty clear, not pretty clearly, clearly that we are going to be caught up in the air with the Lord and it's going to happen in a moment and our body is going to be transformed. And the dead in Christ shall rise, so that, that's a resurrection. We who are alive will be transformed, so, you know, we didn't die, so technically is it a res- it's, it's a re- we all just call it a resurrection, of course, but we're already resurrected in Christ So here are some of the positions. I'm going to rapidly go through these because we could spend time on them. But I think with the time that we do have, it's not really worth it. First, there's the partial rapture position. And this position is that, and this one's pretty low on the totem pole as far as a number of people who, who adhere to it. Uh, partial rapture position is that only those who are watching will be raptured. So this has no, con- they don't concern themselves with timing at all. It's, you know, in the Lord's parable in Luke 21, it's Luke 21:36 that the, the faithful steward is watching and he's ready. Philippians 3:20, we're waiting, we're looking for. Titus 2:13, we're anticipating. 2 Timothy 4.8, we love his appearing. Or as Paul said, laid up for me is the crown of righteousness and for all who have loved his appearing. So those who hold on to this view think that only the believers who have been watching are the ones who are going to get raptured. And the rest of us, I'll say us, (laughs) sorry I didn't mean to insult you, but that would mean that sometime that I'd be left behind and have to go through the tribulation because I wasn't watching. Um, it's somewhat of a weak position. Uh, their basic misunderstanding is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, first off. So why would anybody be excluded from God's bride because of sin? 
if there's no condemnation and your sins are paid for. And also that the, uh, the body of Christ is one, is unified. And to split us up based on merit would be completely against pretty much everything in the scripture that we read. So uh, kind of a weak position, but I throw it out there. We have no time for it anyway. Then there's mid-trib. This is two on the bottom. Uh, the mid-tribulation or rapture position is that the church will be raptured at the end of the first three and a half years of the tribulation. This uh, tribulation we'll see, it's called Daniel's 70th week. It's seven years long. It commences when the beast makes a treaty with uh, Israel. And, and from that point on, it is exactly seven years long. And so... Their position is that the first half of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, aren't that bad, and that the wrath of God doesn't come until the second half. And so they liken the trumpet that we'll read of in a second to be the seventh trumpet. Now, in the book of Revelation, there's seven trumpets that are blown. They're, each of them are judgments upon the earth. And at the seventh one, things really get horrible on the earth. And so these people say, well, that's the time when the wrath comes, and so that's when we go up. Um, problem with this is it's not dispensational. The problem with this is also that the distinction between Israel and the church is kind of fu made fuzzy, um, and that the, what we see for the tribulation, that it's for Israel. It's not for the church. And uh, there's no imminence. You can't have imminence if you're waiting for the beast to be in the temple. Because if you're going to be raptured after the first three and a half years of the tribulation, you, you couldn't possibly re be raptured today. There's no temple. Um, and so, yeah, so it has its weak parts. So you say to yourselves, well, you know, who in their right mind would hold to this? But they, what they do is they, kind, they take the scriptures that don't agree with their position and they kind of massage them a bit. Uh, and so what you can do here is you don't have to interpret what they will do is not interpret everything literally. Uh, and so it's an interpretation issue. But like all theories, some are weaker than others. So these first two, partial rapture and mid-trib rapture, are of the weakest. And then this is the one I want to spend time on. We'll spend a class on this because it... it, it to look at the scriptures that they interpret for this would take a class. And we'll learn from them. Is the post-tribulational rapture position where the church will continue on earth all the way through the tribulation to the second advent of Christ and will be raptured just as Christ is returning and accompanying and accompany him to earth. What this has going for it is the simplicity of one return. See, with the rapture pre-trib, actually even mid-trib, Christ returns, doesn't touch the earth, goes back to heaven. Christ returns, gets his church, goes back to heaven, and then he comes back again at what we call the second coming, and then he comes back to earth. And, you know, uh, there's plenty. This is very popular, especially now. At Corbin, this was taught to me. Uh, even though my theology teacher didn't agree with it. But the textbook that we had to use uh, by John Grudem, who is a, uh, he's like almost in his 80s now, but 
his the his systematic theology is the text in most seminaries and most uh, theological um, uh, departments on campuses, and he he does this is his position. Now he defends this, but he also like like uh, even Walrud and all of them do. Uh, Schaefer does. He presents the pre-trib, and he he sees what what he thinks is wrong with it, and he also shows its merits. And you know, kind of like going back to our opening quote, you know, like Pentecost. If you read things to come, he's going to present a pre-trib. He's going to present a post-trib, a mid-trib, and a partial rapture position. He's going to present them all, and they all do. And each of them are going to hold to their own. So anyway, post-trib, it's pretty popular right now. Uh, and, and it's a matter of interpretation. The problem with this is imminency. Now, we're going to see how they work around it, which, uh, you know, is weak to me. <laughs> I've read it and reread it. I'm like, seriously, that's how you, you know, if, if it's going to be imminent, you need things to be, have already happened. So this is where people will say, well, the Antichrist already came. And it's probably Nero back in AD 65. And you say, well, um, okay, but there's problems with that. Was Nero, uh, a, you know, one of the greatest persecutors of the church? Was he absolutely insane? Was he in charge, an emperor of a kingdom that you could basically say was ruler of other kingdoms? Yeah, you could, but, you know, does he really fit the bill or the job description, we should say, of the Antichrist? And no, <laughs> he doesn't. But, you know, it depends on, you know, if you're going to hold to a position, then you've got to make other scriptures fit it. So, um, Uh, but, again, one of the things that they like is one return of Christ. So, you know, and, and when you read, like, here's Christ's second coming, you, you, you never read of Paul saying, don't confuse this with the rapture. He never says it. In Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's the, that's the passage where we're caught up to him in the, in the air. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he says, no, the day of the Lord hasn't come because the beast isn't in the temple. And he doesn't pause there and say, this isn't the same event I was talking about back in 1 Thessalonians. He doesn't say it. It'd be nice if he did, but he didn't. And the Word of God is inspired. So it's not just an oversight by Paul. It's a very under, undersigned, is that a word? It's purposely done by God. Because if he wanted to include all the timing stuff, he would have. So look at Acts 1.6. Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Notice their mention of time. Is it at this time? Like is now the age, is now the time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, he could have flat out said no, which it wasn't. But he said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And, you know, I think there's a wink and a nod here to the fact that the Father is the one who has fixed it by his own authority, where Christ says that uh, I, no one knows the day of the hour, and he says, I don't either. 
And we scratch our head about this because we say, well, you're the son of God. How can you not know? He says in the Gospels that it's only the Father who knows. And for whatever reason, I don't think we're privy to know why the Son doesn't know. And that's fine by me. All right, go to John 14. We're going to look at three key passages. And none of these are going to deal with timing, but they're main passages for the rapture. Uh, tomorrow we'll do timing. Then maybe Thursday we'll do the dreaded post-tribulational position. So if I done so, here's pre-trib. Uh, and this is what I was taught instantly. I I was um, from the beginning, and of course that that's when I after I became a believer and, and started learning the scripture. That pre-tribulational period, position, sorry, or theory. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. Yeah, you can just grab that gale and then and then no dogs like mailmen. Right? <laughs> All right, so um, John 14.2. So in this case, in John 14.2, believers are received to heaven when he comes again. And that's the, that's the point here. Nothing about timing, nothing about manner, nothing about clouds in the air. But this is where the Lord says, uh, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Right, so this is a wonderful, comforting passage. And the fact that this is right after he says, I'm going to a place and you can't follow, right? So I'm leaving you, is what he says to his disciples. And, um, but to comfort them, he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Dwelling places, this is a house. It's, a, it's not a mansion. That's, that, that was picked up by the song, but the, the I've got a mansion. Yeah, that's... That's not the word. It doesn't use mansion, but it's a house. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Now, here we, here we have it. I will come again. This, this word, uh, we're going to see it multiple times. We'll get into some of the language of this too, but there's, there's three words that are used in the scripture for his returning. One of them is, we've already seen, is that apocalypsis word, which means an unveiling or an uncovering. But then there's another word, a Greek word that's used is parousia, and parousia means a coming. It means to, to uh, come upon the scene. And in this case, that's what he uses here, I'll come again and receive you to myself. Uh, there's no detail here, but the promise of the rapture is here, for sure. There's nothing here about going to earth, is there? Is that I'll receive you to myself. Where is he in the context? He's in heaven. I'm going to a place where you cannot follow. And, they, and honestly, so uh, we laugh at this in the gospel here that the disciples are like, well, where are you going? 
they are honestly thinking of someplace on earth. And that, that should tip us off even further that this is not a return to, this is not us going up into the sky with him and then coming back to heaven. This implies, and I think pretty convincingly, that we go when we meet him in the air, he's taking us to heaven. Now, a post-tribber would say, yeah, yeah, he's, okay, fine. He's taking you to heaven, but only for a few minutes, and then you're coming back to earth. All right, whatever you want. I don't know if they believe that, though, but I'm, I'm thinking somebody probably does. <laughs> so this context points to heaven to receive you to myself is heaven and not earth. And again, this becomes important in terms of um, you know, our expectation. Like I opened with, when you look at the future, right? when you look at the future, man, when your mind gets on the wrong things, it can look just so dire and scary and depressing. And God is saying to us, look at me. Look at my word. Look, And when you look at my word, you're looking at me. Like all of these passages have applications to us that are now, which this should give us joy. If I don't have such a great home on earth, you know, it's not my dream home. Does that really matter all that much? Should you be depressed about it? Well, if you are, like, Colossians 3 says, you're not looking at your, where your life is hid with Christ in heavenly places, but you're looking at the things of the earth. And we're told not to do that. Because when he's revealed, we'll be revealed with him in glory. And, uh, you know, that's our certain future. Things here are temporary. Sit light on earth. Sit light. So he's coming to take the saints to heaven. That's John 14. So we can tick off that box. Does it say anything about timing? No. Does it say anything about manner? No. Well, kind of. I, I guess we could say we're going to heaven. So, it, yeah, that's not manner. That's more destination. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You know, when we get to the tribulation... The Antichrist, just as his that title depicts him, is a false Christ. He's a false son. And the Antichrist is trying to do for the earth what Christ actually does. And it's it's wonderful to see them, you know, one next to the other. Because the Antichrist is Satan's masterpiece. It's the best he can do. And it's really the best he can give to this world. Again, a fallen world that's destined for destruction. And so when our minds start to get on things of the earth and we start getting depressed and burdened and angry and bitter, and, you know, that for, for anybody, that's when, that's not, that's not the end of sin, by the way. That's the beginning Meaning things like depression and anger and bitterness and worry lead to more sin as you try to cope with it, with your misery. And God doesn't want us miserable. We're also not sinless. 
So we confess and repent. We do it a lot. But we keep our hearts and minds settled on the Lord and on His plans, not ours. So, 1 Thessalonians 4.15 For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. That caught up, that's harpazo. In Latin is rapture, where we get rapture from. So you could call it caught up day, but that doesn't have a nice ring to it like rapture does. So, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Notice the together. Right? So, together doesn't mean separation like partial rapture theory. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Always be with the Lord. Now, coupling this with what we've just seen in John 14, where are we going? We're going to heaven. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. That doesn't mean we don't come back down to earth, and we do. We return with Him after the wedding feast in, in Revelation 19. But, but we're always with Him. From that point on, wherever He is, we are as His bride. So Paul answers a question that came up in Thessalonica. Do the dead miss out on the parousia? Or on the coming of the Lord. Did the dead miss out on this? Somehow they got this question. And Paul responds here in his letter that no, they do not. And in fact, they experience the rapture first. Even though, it, as we'll see in our next passage, it happens in a moment. So, if it happens in a moment, being first, you know, uh, okay. <laughs> but... Yeah, just and, and I think that's just the point of no, the dead. If I died before the rapture, you're not missing out on a thing. So you know, people say, "I wish I were in the rapture generation." I, you know, we understand that, but from this passage, which this is irrefutable, it's just plain text that Paul is stating. Either Paul's wrong about it, or he's right, and he's right that. If you died before the rapture, there's not one part of that that you're going to miss, and in fact. You're going to be first. The Lord descends with a shout. This shout is probably referring to a commander's shout, like from a general. There's also the voice of the archangel, which the angels, especially the archangels, are always doing God's bidding. And so we have the shout from the Lord and then the voice of the archangel. It's like a general giving a command to a subordinate and they then give a command and then the trumpet. And the trumpet, which our mid-trib guys say is the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11. And the seventh trumpet is blown right before Elijah and whoever is the other one, the mystery man, go up. Uh, they get raptured, by the way. And so they say, well, look, there's the church gets raptured right with Elijah. And the two witnesses in Revelation 11, they get raptured. The church goes with them. And, you know, I don't agree with it at all, but, you know, okay. Um, but this trumpet is more of a military trumpet. If we keep it in just in the context of the Lord coming with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and then the trumpet. And the trumpet is, it most likely, 
is what we can say, is arousing the living and the dead. Get up. Your Lord is upon you. Uh, this is you know, like a bugle call. Yeah, it should. It should. And the dead will rise, as he says here. Thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Where? In heaven. So this is a fact. This is not, and it's not just in this passage. This is a fact. There's nothing here about timing either. Nothing said about whether it's before the tribulation or during or after. Nothing about that. But what we just take what we're given. And, but more pieces have fallen in. We meet the Lord in the air, and we're going to heaven. And the dead and the living will meet him in the air and go to heaven. And, which I did on Sunday, but I could, you know, we have those passages. I think I still have them in my notes. There they are. The imminency of the Lord is in all of those passages. You don't know the day or the hour. You don't know when I'm coming. Right? So that's a fact. So all of those things are facts, and we just we put them together. <clears throat> so 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17 is a guarantee that all believers are going to meet the Lord in the air, and from there on we'll always be with him. Coupled with John 14 and the imminency of the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air and go to heaven. But we still don't know anything about timing. All right. So one last one, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, let's look at verse 50. Oh, we should say it's the entire church, right? The dead in Christ and the living, that's everybody. That's everybody. So it's the entire church. There's no separation. You know, I was thinking of that partial rapture position, and I thought, well, so if the only those who are alert and watching are going to be raptured, what about the people who died already who are Christians, but they weren't alert? Right, so there's an unwatching, unalert, you know, worldly, carnal Christians say from a hundred years ago. And, you know, are they going to be not, you know, anyway. I don't know if they thought of that, but I, I was like, man, I'm still stuck in this grave because I wasn't alert like a thousand years ago, right? When do I pay my debt? It doesn't make any sense. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. The rapture includes a fundamental change in the nature of our bodies, but also not uh, when is here, but how quickly it happens. And there's actually many things here because, first off, the bodies that we're in now are corrupted. And that's because we're born in Adam. Genesis 3, right? You cursed, you cursed Adam, you cursed the ground, cursed are you. Uh, but explicitly in Romans chapter 5, through Adam's sin, we all sinned. When Adam died, we all died. And so all of us 
are born in Adam. All of us are born corrupted, separated from God, spiritually dead. And so that's what Paul's going to address here. First Corinthians 15:50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. This twinkling of an eye is not so much blinking as it is this word. It literally means two words, and the phrase literally means that I look quickly. And it could mean, in the context of this, when I look quickly, it means that I notice something. Like it's something that comes into, say, my peripheral vision, and I recognize it. And that's fast. And it could, if we go further, you know, it's conjecture, but it could be our recognizing the Lord. Which says in our passage in Second Thessalonians 1, it says that we'll marvel at him. So I tell you, mystery will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. So that's a change in body. And so the emphasis here is in the change of our body as well as the speed, moment. This word moment is a Greek word where we get our English word atom from. And I mean A-T-O-M. Right? The smallest, well, we know things are smaller than that now, but the indivisible, well, we can divide atoms too. <laughs> but until we could split the atom, it was the indivisible part of matter. That's what this word means. It means um, the shortest possible Uh, It means indivisible. So it's actually the Greek word to divide with the negative A in front of it. And an A in front of a Greek word negates what the word means. So it means indivisible. So what unit of time cannot be broken down into another unit of time? So uh, that means fast. That's the whole point. So we would conclude also from the word mystery in verse 51 that Paul is using this word like he always uses this word. Mystery, mysterion in Greek means that something was not known before, but through revelation of Scripture is now made known. And so the Old Testament definitely knew about the second coming of Christ or the second coming of the Messiah. They knew that the kingdom was coming. They knew about an age that would be the age of the Messiah. And that's why, you know, when he started doing his miracles and got popular, the Jews wanted to make Christ king. That's, they, the disciples said it before they really understood all that was going to happen. Is it now that you're bringing in the kingdom of Israel? See, that they knew what was a mystery. Mystery means we know now through New Testament revelation. The mystery is that um, this activity of taking people in a moment and transforming them into heaven in the clouds of the air with the Messiah, him taking them to heaven. 
You can scour the Old Testament for that. You're not going to find it. So, mystery revealed. So, that's another indication that this is not the second coming, but something else by the use of the word mystery. I say again, indication. Is God coming right out and spelling it out for us explicitly? For whatever reason, he's not. I, I jazzes me about God. He used to make me kind of nervous, but it doesn't anymore. It actually excites me. I'm like, it makes me think, what is to come? Something I can't imagine? That's the way I want it. <laughs> I don't want to imagine it. If I can imagine it in this finite, stupid mind of mine, then it can't be all that great. And I can imagine a lot. But this, this is something else. It's marvelous. And we should see it as marvelous. You know, I, I think there's room here for having goosebumps a few times a day when you remind yourself, hey, wait a minute. I am lightly tethered to this world and there's something coming that is beyond anything I could think or imagine. I mean, how good is God at preparing good stuff for His people? He even said it to Israel. Israel, He said, look, was it five of you will chase a thousand and that this land will flow with milk and honey? Well, what do you got to do? Just obey me? I say just. He didn't ask him to be sinless. He doesn't ask us to be sinless either. But boy, I understand it. I understand how Christians get bogged down with the wrong thinking, wrong priorities, wrong visions, wrong perspectives. And it puts them in bad places. And they have a hard time getting out of it. You know, when people have a hard time getting out of that, that's when the discipline of the Lord comes, just to help them. Help them get out. So, um, verse 53, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality... Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But we're not under that anymore. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, or through our Lord, Jesus Christ. So the trumpet is a reference to the awakening of an army urgently roused to activity. So we would imagine, it is the best conclusion in, in what I think. Not the, not the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation. Um, by the way, the book of Revelation was written 40 years, probably a little more than 40 years after Corinthians is written. So how could the Corinthians know about the revelation of the seventh trumpet through John's book of Revelation? It hasn't been written yet. So that's an argument against that. So um, you know, what we have here is the application to imminency and something wonderful. And so as um, 
this, I get this sit, sit light on the earth is from this, uh, well, I can't remember his first name, uh, Thistleton. And he writes a great commentary on 1 Corinthians. Uh, he says, Paul, indeed does, Paul does indeed want Christians to sit light in the world as eschatological pilgrims. <laughs> now, eschatology is this a study of the last days, okay? So, you're living as a last day pilgrim, ready for the call home or for the parousia, that's the Greek word for coming, at any moment. Any moment. So what? Be alert. Be ready. Be watchful. Because the things of this world not near as important. They're not only they're not secondary. They're like tertiary. They're down. They're down the priority list. We've got to take care of them, and we should take care of them well. But we should do it with joy in our hearts. Everything is under the Lord. Everything. Get rid of that grumpiness. <laughs> There's no point to it. Look, I I say that to myself day in and day out, day in and day out. You know, there's thing, things I got to do that I would rather not. I, I you know they get they take time. I'd rather be using my time for something else, but you got to take care of them. If you're going to be a responsible believer and serve the Lord, you got to take care of them. But in doing so, with this alert, yeah, think of the Lord who knows he's going home to be with the Father in just, what, a few years. It's short. He's short-timer here on earth. And he knows it. Like he knew. He would say to the people, my hour has not yet come, which means he knew when the hour was coming, and he said so. And, uh, you know, think about how he went about things. He took care of things on earth. Certainly did. Even took care of his mother from the cross, for God's sakes. But always with heaven in mind. We're all short timers here. Sit light in this world. Be ready. As Paul writes, if you're perplexed, you're not despairing. We're going to be perplexed. We're going to be beat down. We're going to be tired. We're going to be confused. We're going to be very pressured. There's a, a Greek word for our, I forget what the, what the English translation is, but it means to be stuck between a thin wall. It's the word for pressure. It means you're being squeezed in a vice. <laughs> and it feels like that as well. All right. But don't despair. No point in despairing. Look to the future. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word and thank you for this promise of the coming of our Lord. As we see in these passages, Father, though you have not explicitly stated timing, you have, through what you have revealed, set our hearts in freedom and in joy. And so, though we hold to a theory, we know the theory to be pretty sound. And for the things that we don't know, Father, we know that those things, though beyond our imagination, are beyond wonderful to our imagination. So we thank you that you have provided for us just what we need to know. May we look to the future and be watchful and alert. 
In Christ's name, amen.